This sermon is brought to you again by Mike Wessinger. He was the highest bidder for the second sermon at our most recent church auction. The title he chose for the first sermon two weeks ago was I've Lost My Benevolent Mojo. And today's his title is related. Is Our Benevolence Holding Them Down? I told you a bit about Mike last time, so I won't repeat his biographic information this morning. He's a generous, hardworking, hard-playing man. He's a friend. And friends hold friends accountable with civility. The us versus them in the title is a problem. Is our benevolence holding them down? This framework imposes a hard division between human groups. In what way is this world so easily split in two? Haves versus have-nots. 1% versus 99%. Light skin versus dark. Male versus female. Straight versus gay or transgendered. Citizen versus immigrant. Or refugee. At the core of dreadful abuse between human groups are these various labels of us versus them. The fallacies of simplistic dualism are a worldview blinding us to our overwhelming similarities. It's a form of unwarranted arrogance. Even when fellow humans seem impossibly different, our human likeness vastly outweighs our difference. This cognitive error in the sermon title doesn't negate the valuable underlying question. When is charity harmful? When we try to be generous, are we actually creating dependence? The answers are important for our political and economic system. Does welfare or government subsidies foster laziness or greed or fraud? The answers are useful for our church. How can we be most helpful out in the community? Mike and I had coffee early this month to discuss concerns at the heart of the title. We talked about many things, but one statistic he threw out has burrowed into my memory. He recalled that 80% of the children in the Tulsa public school system are eligible for free and reduced lunch, 80%. No, you were wrong, Mike. You were low. It is 84% are eligible. What he sees in that statistic is an unbelievable number of students getting a handout. I see local public schools overrepresented by gross economic segregation. Families with means have bailed out of Tulsa public schools into private and parochial schools and wealthier suburbs where the level of subsidized meals doesn't rise above 40%. 40% is still appalling. 
framing financial benevolence and subsidies in terms of school lunches, the question becomes, is the benevolence of Oklahoma taxpayers for free meals at schools keeping families from working hard and achieving economic independence? Are we keeping those families down? Is this charity perpetuating a chronic problem, actually adding to it? The issues of poverty and government support are complex and multi-layered. For example, is the school lunch already subsidized by government agricultural subsidies? Are we keeping those farmers and agribusinesses down? If any of us had ready answers to solving the scourge of poverty and our nation's role in it, we'd be eradicating it right this minute. So what the sermon title highlights is that fear of being taken advantage of by others in need, a fear of sincere charity causing more harm than help. The title is an accurate observation of human nature. When we receive benefits over and over again, we can become complacent. Underlying any simple gesture of charity is a swirl of concerns and of factors. For example, many of you may take a consistent stance when you pass a panhandler. Some of you may never give money. Others may always drop some change in the cup. My own benevolence pendulums wide and wildly. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I regularly pass a rotating crew of panhandlers on the corner of on and off ramps in the Broken Arrow Expressway. And when I see them, Every time, the same litany of contradictory thoughts run through my head. First, I see the distance between myself and this person. I admit I initially jumped to the me versus them agenda. I just critiqued. My automatic judgment is the primitive animal part of my brain making a creaturely assessment. They, they are standing out in every type of weather as I sit idling at the stoplight, dry and steeped in an ideal temperature. So to narrow this gap between two humans of different circumstances, I think he could be my brother. She could be a friend I've lost touch with. It could be me. Bringing this person into my human understanding doesn't make the decision to give a handout any easier or clearer. Are their clothes neat? If too clean, I'm suspicious. 
I worry about being had. I don't want to be duped, participating in some kind of scam. If their clothes are too ragged, I suspect addiction. Of course, my money would be used for their next fix. Although, counterintuitively, I may be helping them hit bottom, speeding them on their way to recovery, according to 12-step thinking. Therefore, no matter how they use the money, if I decide to give some, it is ultimately good. I can rationalize so many things. Every time I pass a panhandler, I make a vow to stop at Quick Trip to buy gift cards to give out instead of money. Like that'll solve the solution, make us solve the problem. But I never do. In the end, I'm not convinced that that extra effort would yield any better results. Giving feels good. My circumstances allow me to be generous. Although, what is generous? Is $1, $5, or 20 So I begin to feel inadequate. This handout is not enough to truly make a difference. Money is not at the core of the need. I may be perpetuating a dynamic and system that is demeaning, abusive even. My efforts to be charitable, to be benevolent, don't move out of my self-absorbed, overthinking head. Yes, my heart is moved to help another, but only in a way that gives me a pass and allows me to drive on once the light turns green. The beggar remains a stereotype, not a distinct individual with a life story. From panhandlers to writing checks to valuable causes... My giving remains remote and anonymous. So, Mike, you're right to question whether our impulses to help others are ultimately helpful. So I dug into articles and books, watching lectures that critique charitable charitable forms of giving. Um, Some of you may have gotten, in your order of service, a card... If not, you can pick one up afterwards. But what it is, is the Oath for Compassionate Service. It's a set of rules created by Dr. Robert Lupton. He's a psychologist by training who's worked more than 40 years in Atlanta, figuring out how to assist underserved neighborhoods. He moved to Atlanta's inner city when he returned from the Vietnam War to work with youth. He stayed there, raising a family, creating focused community strategies to help these neighborhoods reweave themselves. Lupton's book is called Toxic Charities. Some of you have seen me carrying it around. He talks about the dark side of our benevolence. He writes, compassion is a dangerous thing. It can open a person to all manner of risks. It causes reasonable people to make extravagant heart decisions, from spending untold hours collecting supplies to assist flood victims, to journeying into harm's way to feed starving refugees. Some have even left 
successful careers, devoting themselves to a cause that gripped their hearts. Compassion is a powerful force, a stamp of the divine nature within our spirits. Wait a minute. How many times have I stood in this pulpit and talked about cultivating compassion? Dozens. The dirty secret is it's at the core of every single sermon I preach. It's a theme that uh, I, I talk about countless ways. And now I'm bringing you the news. Compassion is dangerous. Yes. Compassion can beckon us into unexplored territory into a painful world of pressing human needs. And the irony of work driven by compassion is coming face to face with the depth of brokenness in our world. A meal made, a house repaired, a rent paid, a bag of clothes given, all point to problems that are deep. Poverty is too entrenched. The needs are overwhelming. What often is holding someone down is not simply laziness or ignorance, but a web of unjust systems and unavoidable events. A woman doesn't become a prostitute because sex is fun. She may have been trafficked into it as a child or it allows her to feed her children as a single mother. The war veteran now out on the street with untreated PTSD and moral injuries did not intend to alienate family, neighbors, co-workers. Our blighted, impoverished neighborhoods did not become pockets of poverty in one generation. The life expectancy in parts of Tulsa is 15 years lower because The residents don't share the same history as the rest of our town. Our smallness in the face of great hurt drives us into our own poverty, a poverty of spirit. We experience a crisis in our own abilities to rescue. In a strange twist of irony, we extend mercy only to discover that we too are in need of mercy. At this inevitable intersection of the universal human need, us versus them falls away. Out of our own need, we are readied for service that is more humble and wise. Mercy for ourselves and others becomes humble and wise when it's joined with justice. Rather than getting stuck in providing simply charity where we can grow impatient with the recipients of our kindness, wondering why don't they help themselves? A top-down model of charity. I have money, resources, skills I see you need, and I'm going to give them to you. We have to pair this benevolence, this urge, this dangerous compassion with justice, with a willingness to be curious and want to know more. So giving is reciprocal, 
So the relationship becomes even, loving, collaborative. We must temper our powerful, compassionate impulses by getting close enough to those in need to listen to their story. True justice, developing it together, can only arise when we hear what someone in need really needs. Want to help someone? Shut up and listen. That's the title of a TED Talk by Ernesto Ciroli, a man who's worked in Africa for years. Want to help someone? Shut up and listen. He says, every single project we set up in Africa failed. I was distraught. I thought, age 21, that we Italians were good people and we were doing good work in Africa. Instead, everything we touched, we killed. His first project in Africa was teaching people in Zambia how to grow tomatoes, zucchini, and other Italian favorites. Instead of asking why they were not growing anything, we simply said, thank God we're here now. Ciroli and his fellow aid workers were thrilled to see crops grow immeasurably well. But as harvest time approached, they watched in horror as 200 hippos stormed out of a nearby river and ate everything in sight. All of a sudden, Ciroli understood why the locals hadn't been interested in growing food. It is funny, except it's tragic. It's a mistake we repeat over and over again. It is compassion without justice. It is charity as a one-way exchange. Instead, we can learn from each other. I don't have all the answers, but together we might make our world a better place if we listen and shut up. The first item on this oath for compassionate service is never do for the poor what they have the capacity to do for themselves. And we cannot know what someone can do or what a whole neighborhood can do until we know, get to know them, get to know their history, get to know their circumstances. You know, I don't know the panhandler on the corner as I drive to work and on errands, I can't stop, take the time to stop, park, have a conversation, understand their needs, or determine what circumstances brought each person to that point in time and that point of geography. Many suggest the way to assist the panhandler is to give the dollar, or five or twenty, to a food bank or a homeless shelter or addiction recovery group. Maybe that's a step in the right direction, but it still reinforces that us versus them. The I know what you need, benevolence. To effectively impact a life, a relationship must be formed. Trust built, accountability established. The tools for removing charity from just compassion into justice are built right into our religious tradition 
we practice respect for the individual while recognizing we are all integral parts of an infinite cosmos. The intimate size of Hope Church gives us manageable opportunities to get to know one another, not just by sight, but by listening to each other's life stories. Over time, we come to know each other's fears, successes, blind spots, and wisdom. No topic is off the table here. We can listen to matters of utmost importance. We can gently pull out issues we normally bypass and cover over. We can talk about death and birth, success, failure, fears, and courage. So then we begin to have a true three-dimensional understanding of what we need and an idea of how to ask those outside what they need. We can take the long view with ourselves and our community. We can discern whether a charity is for immediate crisis relief. That's not bad. Or a chronic problem. If chronic, our aid has to be rooted in long-term knowledge of ourselves and our city. It must be an equal exchange supporting the dignity of all concerned. I'm sure you know the adage, feed a person to fit, uh, feed a person to fish, well, feed a person to fish and they'll eat for a day. <laughs> Teach someone to fish and they can eat for a lifetime. That's good. But not good enough. It remains focused on the individual. If the problem is no food, but no fish is a chronic problem, it may be a larger issue. Not unless we get to know the fishermen and community, not until we shut up and listen, do we find out the fish have been disappearing from the river because of overfishing or pollution. Teaching someone to fish is an individual matter. And a good thing. While working together to save the river, is the work of a connected, informed community. Saving a river is for all, and it's the work of justice. It ensures the community can fish today, and no one goes hungry. It is benevolence and respect that we're interconnected, working together for a common future. Is our benevolence holding them down? Yes, it is, if we don't know them, if we're not part of a whole, if we're not connected to a community, if our relationship to them is hierarchical in one way. May it not be so.